This is Sean Bull and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett rejected an appeal on Thursday that would have blocked President Biden's plan to forgive student debt, reports the Associated Press. That was brought before the nation's highest court by the conservative legal firm Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL. The case was previously heard by a federal judge last month who dismissed the lawsuit due to lack of standing. Will then appealed the decision, which too was dismissed. People carrying specific types of student debt can apply to have up to $20,000 of that debt forgiven if they meet income requirements. The Advocate Aurora Hospital System may have accidentally exposed the personal health information for up to 3 million people in Wisconsin and Illinois. Advocate Aurora, the largest healthcare provider in the state of Wisconsin, failed to disable online tracking programs called Pixels on its website, possibly resulting in reporting users' web activity to third parties. While no misuse of information has been reported so far, the breach exposed sensitive patient information like dates and location of medical appointments, as well as names of patients' medical providers, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. Dane County supervisors are looking for ways to allow county employees access to abortion care. The Dane County Board released a statement today announcing that they would consider an amendment during budget season that would reimburse county employees who had to travel out of state for abortion care. While the current insurance provider for the county cannot cover expenses like travel or lodging, the board said this new amendment would also cover those types of costs. The amendment heads to the Personnel and Finance Committee tonight. In-person absentee voting begins in Madison tomorrow and will continue until November 6th, two days before the election. Times and locations for early voting vary. Among the locations open tomorrow are both UW-Madison unions, Ulbrich Park, several branches of the Madison Library, and the Global Market and Food Hall. More locations will open up in the coming days. Hours and locations available are on the City Clerk's Office website. If you vote early, be sure to bring acceptable photo identification. If you've moved or changed names since the last time you voted, you'll need to re-register, which you can do at the early voting locations. A list of offices and candidates on your ballot are available at MyVoteWisconsin. That's myvote.wi.gov. Alumni Park on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus was spray-painted last night in protest of a conservative speaker scheduled to speak on campus tonight. Matt Walsh is a self-described theocratic fascist and is on campus to discuss his anti-transgender film titled What is a Woman? Walsh was invited to speak by the Young Americans for Freedom, a conservative campus group, and the graffiti heaped ire on both imploring UW to, quote, stop letting Nazi transphobes talk, end quote. WORT reporters attempting to interview attendees of the event were told that they could not interview people in line. Protests against the speaker are continuing. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway is meeting with the community this evening to discuss housing opportunities around Madison. The town hall will cover accessory dwelling unit regulations, how to keep neighborhoods affordable, and new construction projects around the city. The meeting starts at 7 and will take both place in person at the, Sequoia, at the Sequoia Library or online. You can find the link to the Zoom meeting on the City of Madison's website. 
The city of Madison revealed the new names of their compactors at the Sycamore Avenue drop-off site. The trash compactor will be called Rosie the Rubbisher, while the recycling compactor will be called Stone Cold Squeeze Often. Both names were chosen by online polls. And now, on to today's top stories. With winter just around the corner and inflation continuing to hit families across the state, WE Energies is asking the state's Public Service Commission to approve a rate hike starting next year. The energy provider is now facing criticism, with folks saying that raising the average household's electricity bill by $175 a year amid huge profits is irresponsible. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. Wisconsin's top energy provider is asking the state's Public Service Commission to increase energy prices by nearly 13 percent for regular households starting next year, drawing criticism from both state lawmakers and watchdog groups. Milwaukee-based We Energies is one of Wisconsin's top energy providers, providing energy to over a million people across the state. With these proposed rate increases, the average home would pay an additional $175 for electricity next year and around $7.71 per month for natural gas. While the company is proposing double-digit rate hikes for regular customers, they are also asking to increase the rate for large corporate energy users by just around 6%, half of what they originally proposed in April of this year. Tom Content is the executive director of the Citizens Utility Board, a nonprofit organization advocating on behalf of consumers for fair utility practices. He says that the rate increase is concerning because Wisconsinites are already overpaying for their utilities. There's a study by the Berkeley Business School Energy Institute that found that utility customers across the country are overpaying by billions of dollars every year. Um, and then Wisconsin and Wisconsin customers are overpaying as part of that. Um, and we're op- overpaying even more since our profit rates for utilities are higher than the national average. Wisconsin regularly pays significantly more for utilities than both the U.S. average and the Midwest average. That's according to the Strategic Energy Assessment from the Public Service Commission, which analyzed historical trends in energy consumption up to 2016. Content also says that a surprise price increase for essential services like electricity will put even more burden on households struggling with inflation. And so at the beginning of the case, We Energies essentially said that customers would see an increase of five to six bucks a month, which was going to be lower than the average increase. But unfortunately, they pulled the rug out from under the residential customers and small business customers, because now at the end of the case, they've flipped the script. And now they're proposing that residential customers get a 13% increase for we energies and that the big corporations, large manufacturers, get a six and change, so under 7% increase. So that's another thing that we just think is blatantly unfair. Kiva Guiden is the energy burden organizer for Citizens Action of Wisconsin, a nonprofit community action organization. She adds that these rate increases will disproportionately affect communities of color in Milwaukee due to redlining causing homes in those communities to be less weather resilient than those in white neighborhoods. The homes itself, they're uninsulated. They're not weatherized. So there's always some kind of creek or a opening or a space which allows and makes us pull more energy to keep our houses warm. 
So that means that if you're in a, a grade A neighborhood, you're not even paying half of what we're seeing. But Brendan Conway with We Energy says that these increases are necessary because inflation has raised the cost for green energy projects by the company. Three main factors is our, our capital investments, mainly renewable energy, um, reliability investments. We're making uh, grid hardening projects, burying power lines, strengthening our system against severe weather, and then some changes in our wholesale business with the other utilities. The Public Service Commission will hold a public hearing on the rate increase on November 3rd in Milwaukee. They will also accept public comment on the issue through the commission's website through November 7th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. The cost of living adjustment for Social Security will reach nearly 9% for 2023. Wisconsinites who rely heavily on the program's monthly payments say it's a welcome relief, although it doesn't relieve concerns about their future. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. People who receive Social Security payments are eager to see the new cost of living adjustment be applied. The highest increase in decades comes as many beneficiaries in Wisconsin and elsewhere struggle to get by. This month, the Social Security Administration announced a COLA increase of 8.7% for 2023. That's about an extra $145 a month on average. Nancy Cook, a retiree from the Milwaukee area, says the payments are all she and her husband have in terms of income, which makes it difficult to keep up with inflation. It's been really tough. I didn't expect it would be so hard, but it's been really hard. There have been times when we've run out of food money and it's like, okay, what do we do for the next two weeks? She says the extra money will help immensely, but budgeting will still be a challenge. Some Republicans in Congress have floated reforms viewed as a way to trim the program. They argue fixes are needed as more people in an aging population sign up for payments. But opponents, including AARP, say a bipartisan approach is needed to protect Social Security and make it stronger. Cook says the broader public needs to understand just how vital the program is to many older Americans who don't have a retirement nest egg. I don't know what they think people will do without it, because we're not the only couple in the world that live on Social Security alone. Overall, there are more than 65 million Social Security beneficiaries. Meanwhile, older Americans are getting some more good financial news. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announced a decrease in Medicare Part B premiums and deductibles. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.17, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
When former District 17 Elder Gary Halverson stepped down from his position last month, six candidates applied to take over the role of representing Madison's east side until April of next year. Last Thursday night, the Common Council interviewed those candidates and came to a decision to name Sabrina Madison, founder of the Progress Center for Black Women, as the district's new elder. She will be officially sworn into her role at tomorrow night's council meeting. Earlier today, Sabrina Madison sat down with WORT producer Nate Weggehout to talk about what she hopes to achieve in her time as elder. So, Sabrina, I, I know we've talked a couple of times in the past, so I know who you are. But for those people at home who may not know who you are, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell, tell us about who is uh, Hey Miss Progress. Yeah, so I'm Sabrina Madison, of course. Most folks do just still call me progress. But in short, I just really look at myself as a community navigator. Uh, since coming to Madison um, strategically to create this better life for my son and I, we've been able to accomplish and surpass our goals. And I'm very much interested in how do we continue to surpass our goals and more importantly, help other people do the same. And so I'm very much well informed about local resources. I am dedicated to being, you know, the person you can reach out to when you're looking for some sort of support um, and being able to get you an answer or finding someone who can get you an answer. So outside of being a community builder, um, I am also an avid networker and because, you know, it takes networking to know who's who in order to adequately provide or share resources with other folks. I feel like I'm really good at just knowing who to go to and for what and how to get things done. Um, I'm a mom. I have one son. My son will be 28 next month and I'm excited to celebrate his birthday with him. But more, I just really want people to know me as just like the community navigator. Um, I'm also the founder of the Progress Center for Black Women. And in that space as well, I am just really uh, making myself available along with my staff as um, a place where folks can go, where we center black women especially and provide resources around entrepreneurship, financial health and professional development. And so now when this vacancy on the Common Council uh, opened up, uh, why why did you decide to go and throw your hat into the mix? Why did you decide to apply for the position? Yeah. So I had been considering a run for Alder for a couple of years now, but I wanted to do it when I was ready. And so because the men's shelter is right here in my district, of course, and I started to see some of the conversations that were happening around the shelter potentially being located here. And I kind of felt I, I was just very disappointed around how some of the conversations were were going. And I didn't like the fear mongering aspect of them simply because in my own family, I have two family members who live here in Madison. And both of them had made use of the men's shelter. One currently still does. And so one of my family members were able to get to a place of stability where he has a full-time job, he has housing, and had it not been for the way that the resources are provided at the men's shelter, I don't think he'd be able to get there. And then my second relative still uses the shelter periodically, but he too, who, you know, he has some mental health challenges and he's been able to get not only stable, but he has a job that he's been at for some weeks now. And I strongly believe, you know, with the resources that the way that the shelter provides him, he'll be able to also say that he has stable housing in the future. So I just wanted to be able to add some value around my knowledge around resources and who needs resources and how to sort of provide those resources in a very humane and, um, I don't know, just caring sort of way. And so I felt like my history as a community navigator and a relationship builder, builder, I can add some value to that conversation and that future work. 
And so now you're only set to serve on the board for just a few months until April of next year, which is not a whole lot of time. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, sort of looking at that time, what are some of your priorities that you want to uh, sort of focus on on the board? What do you think are some of the biggest issues that you uh, want to tackle on the board? I know you mentioned uh, the uh, men's homeless shelter there. Uh, what, what else are you sort of passionate about? Yeah, so I am, because of my relationship building and just network, of, I, I had already started to begin to build relationships with folks who live in my district. So I really want to continue those conversations to meet people one-on-one where they're at and just hear from them about their own concerns. So I definitely want to continue to do that. I do want to also make sure I'm part of discussions and creating some sort of dedicated workspace, or just not workspace, but dedicated space for seniors, our elders in our district. And it looks like most of that will happen as part of the Imagination Center over at Rindell Park. And then I really want to just firm up or help add value to the relationship between the men's shelter staff and the East Side business community, you know, like the East Town area business community, because I think that both have some value to give to each other. And I think I can help in just strengthening the relationship between the two. Um, and then I really want to do some relationship building and collaborate with my fellow alders. Uh, because, you know, we're, you know, we're leading districts that, you know, bump up against each other. And all of our districts are dealing with some of the similar issues, especially around uptick in crime, for example. And yes, homelessness, you know, so um, I think around some creative collaboration, we can help address some of those issues collaboratively. Um, and then I do want to get a clear picture of what's happening with crime in our district, especially, and understanding the strategies that are, you know, currently employed to combat that and how I really am very much concerned around some of the issues that might be happening with the motels in our district and, you know, our families and individuals over there getting the resources that they need so we don't see, you know, certain kinds of crimes happening in that area, for example, because oftentimes folks who are in the area who may be renting those rooms are in a place of where, you know, just a place of lack and they don't have a lot and they should be safe too as well. I've come from a family who my son and I have had to stay in similar motels before we moved to Madison. So I know how, you know, when crime can happen in those sort of places, it's not healthy for anyone, especially for the community, but more importantly for the po- folks who need to stay there and be safe. Now, I know you haven't uh, started taking over on your role as an older. I believe you're set to be mm-hmm. confirmed uh, tomorrow night. Uh, but you do sort of mm-hmm. have this uh, unique sort of position within the community at the Progress Center for uh, mm-hmm. Black Women. So I want to I want to ask, what have what have you sort of heard from the people in your district? What you know from their eyes? What are some of the major issues that are sort of currently facing their neighborhoods? Yeah, so a lot of it is just what I, so how I really came to prioritize the things that were important for me to work on is based on the conversations that I've had with them. And so folks are sharing a little bit around uh, traffic is definitely one of the issues that most folks I talk to are finding to be an issue. Everything from drag racing down East Wash, I even hear it here on America Parkway, to uh, feeling like there needs to be a bit more roundabouts or some sort of speed bump because folks are still speeding where there are elementary children, you know, walking to and from school. And then I've heard from a good number of seniors who are just interested in having some sort of dedicated space so they can be in community with each other and have their own meetings and such like that, you know, whether it's a cooking class or being able to attend some sort of public input meeting, for example. Um, So crime, traffic concerns, senior spaces, um, that's really, those are mostly the top three. Then, of course, 
um, for folks who either had concerns about the men's shelter or just mostly interested in ensuring that uh, the shelter is, you know, like that the men who are utilizing a shelter are not sort of criminalized before they can even, you know, come in there and enjoy the shelter and being safe, that we're thinking about these the folks who use a shelter more as these are folks who need some help versus these are potential criminals. And so I've heard from people who are, you know, of course they want the folks who are utilizing the shelter not to do anything that will be of cause for concern, but they also want to, for their neighbors to sort of look at these men who are using a shelter as simply people who are needing some help at this point in their lives. And so now, like I said, this term will only go until about April of next year. Do do you intend to uh, run for re-election when your term comes up in April? Will I you, do. Will you continue nope, uh, sort I, of going? Yep, I I definitely do. Just because I want the opportunity to, I had already planned to run, and I want the opportunity to sort of like be able to see through things I would have started on. At the end of the day, I just I do feel like I'm like the best choice and a great choice to do it. Well, we're sort of running up against the clock here, Sabrina. Do you have just any final thoughts that you want uh, the people out there to know? Yeah, I'm excited. Um, again, I'm I'm really excited for young people to see me because young people continue to show up in my own leadership. So I'm excited for them. But more importantly, I'm just I'm a networker. I want folks to feel like I am accessible to them and I want to make myself accessible. So if you're especially in my district and you're listening, please reach out to me. The email, I think, will be live tomorrow. I've been talking with Sabrina Madison, who is set to become Madison's next alder of District 17. Uh, she is going to be sworn in tom- at tomorrow night's Common Council meeting. Uh, Sabrina, thank you so much for talking with me, and uh, congratulations, I suppose. Thank you. I appreciate it. The time now is 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Sean Bull. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, which means that Forward Lookout host Brenda Conkle sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings happening in Madison and Dane County this week. This week, budget deliberations, new alders, and ways to treat the PFAS in Well 15. All right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with a big budget meeting happening. Uh, it's actually a joint meeting of the city and uh, Dane County. So tell us about that. It's already in progress. Yep. Um, the Personnel and Finance Committee of the county will be meeting with the Finance Committee of the city to go over the public health budget. And that's because the public health budget is both uh, Dane County and City of Madison funded. So they meet together to make sure they don't pass two separate things that are different and then have to come back and try to make it all work together. So they'll be meeting first there at 530. And then afterwards, the personnel and finance committee will be meeting by itself. Um, It will have its regular agenda. And then at the end, it will be doing just the budget. And for the budget, they will be looking at the city treasurer, the library and administration. Um, Otherwise, on their agenda, there's a few, um, you know, lots of the routine items. and nothing really big, um, but the Align Energy Center and CrossFit agreement is on there, some wetland rest- restoration and some parks restoration funding. Yeah, and what I've been hearing about just kind of both the city and the county budget process is just the, you know, these one-time federal funds of 
maybe staved off some hard decisions for yet another year. Is that what you're hearing? Yes, exactly. Um, Hmm. It seems like, um, you know, there's still some ARPA money left, so there's some still some flexibility, but next year I think it's going to be a lot tougher. Well, why don't we just go over all the other budget meetings, because that's all there is. That's all she wrote, folks, this week, at least for county government. <laughs> that is true. At 530, Public Protection and Judiciary will be meeting. They have some of their own agenda items, but the very first thing they'll be doing is the budget. And then Health and Human Needs Committee will be meeting at 530 as well. They will only be talking about budget Public Works and Transportation Committee meeting at 530. They are also talking about budget and they had four different contract change orders. Um, and then 630 Zoning and Land Regulation Committee will be meeting and they have their regular agenda um, and they actually will not be talking about the budget. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. cool. Well, if anyone wants more information about that, I encourage them to go to forwardlookout.com. Let's move on to the city of Madison. Uh, what about the Transportation and Policy Planning um, Board, which is meeting virtually? That That's already in progress. Yep, they'll be looking at the policy for assessing street improvements. Um, so they're looking at approving and adopting a new policy there. They're also going to be looking at um, complete green streets um, and, and how that's going for the city of Madison and getting a director's report. All right. And what about the the Common Council's executive committee is their subcommittee, at least, is meeting um, at 430 to discuss a new code of conduct that's happening yes, Tuesday it. virtually at 430. Yeah. Um, so they um, didn't have a link to it. So uh, it says that they'll be looking at the updated version, but I don't know what it is because there was no link. Well, get out of here. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll, I guess we'll find that out tomorrow. So, um, all right. Then the full common council, they're meeting 630 um, on 630 on Tuesday. That's um, a virtual meeting, maybe hybrid too. I'm not sure what the status of that is yet. Um, but we have Sabrina Madison, who I think she's already been appointed, but she needs to be confirmed by the full council. She'll be taking over for, for um, Alder Gary Helverson, who resigned after... Oh, how do you how do we even describe this story <laughs> after accidentally joining a far right militia in 2020? I guess that's how we do it. Um, so that's happening. Uh, interesting. Yeah, this will be quite the change for District 17. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and I wrote an article about it for Isthmus, but I also thought it was interesting that Sabrina Madison, um, you know, she said she wanted to run but had really nothing to do with the former alder. But because of the men's shelter and how she she. She really didn't like the the tone and tenor of that debate that was, um, you know, very much opposed by people in her district. So interesting way to start off your tenure by going against uh, your most vocal constituents. But we'll see how we'll see how that works out. So what else is happening with the Common Council? So if she's appointed, she will be sworn in. And then after that, they will be um, having a public hearing on the executive operating budget. Um, and then they're going to also be talking about the rules and procedures for the upcoming budget season. Uh, it seems a little late to be doing that. Maybe they're making some sort of an amendment. Wasn't quite sure what they were going to do there. Um, and then there's a bunch of other routine items on their agenda. Um, and then they have the operating plan for the uh, bid district. Um, it hasn't been as controversial in recent years. Um, there's some addition protections they're going to be putting in for building code complainants. And a whole bunch of other items on the agenda you may want to take a look. What about the Water Utility Board at 4.30? Um, That's happening on Wednesday, and it's an in-person meeting. 
Yep. So they will be looking at uh, probably the big item there as well, 15, looking at different treatment design alternatives for that. Um, and then they also are looking at um, putting some wireless um, phone communication stuff on one of the towers, as well as um, amending their capital budget to transfer funds for one pro program for another. And then they have tons of reports. Um, they have lots of information in the reports. This week, they'll be hearing about water quality, water production, financial conditions, capital projects, and operating monthly report. Okay. Um, also on Wednesday is the Transportation Commission. And, uh, you know, what's interesting, I saw on here they have a substitute amendment that is approving an initial concept design for some public art, it looks like. From Jenny Gao, people might recognize her. She, um, I thought she moved to the West Coast, but apparently she's still doing this project with Madison Metro for some sort of public art. Is that what it looks like to you? Um, yep. Um, this is for their um, their main office there on East Washington. So they're looking for some public art there. Then the committee will also be looking at giving some feedback on a few different developments um, on Acacia Ridge phase eight, Atticus Way, as well as the American Center plant. And then they will also be looking at helpful practices for inclusive meetings and adopting the 2023 meeting format for the Transportation Commission. Okay. All right. Well, we our time is short. So five o'clock on Thursday, the Police Civilian Oversight Board, um, they tr their second choice <laughs> in two years for um, to hire this independent monitor that was... Um, Man, they've hit some snags, so they'll be meeting in closed session about that. So maybe we'll hear more about that in the future. But why don't you just tell us what's happening in the, the Common Council Executive Committee meeting on Thursday at 530. Sure. So they will be looking at a few different ordinances. One is to prohibit committees from meeting on nights when there is um, or the council is prohibited from meeting um, or conducting meetings. Usually those are holidays and, and uh, budget nights, but um that they're going to be looking at that change. They're also going to be looking at simplifying how they do their consent agenda um, and then amending um, the general ordinances to update all their terms. Um, and then they do have the um, ordinances related to the police civilian oversight board on there. Um, and then they'll be getting some updates from their staff. All right. And if you want to know more about what's happening this week in Dane County and Madison local government, just head on over to forwardlookout.com. Brenda, thank you for walking uh, us through the, what's happening this week. No problem. This Thursday is the 60th anniversary of the day Vasily Arkhipov saved the world. Arkhipov was the submarine officer who blocked a nuclear missile launch during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. The intro is from a YouTube history piece by Simon Whistler. Had Vasily not been present, nuclear war would have likely happened as both the captain and the political officer wanted to launch the nuclear torpedo. This Thursday, October 27th, is the anniversary of the day Vasily Alexandrovich Arkhipov saved us all. The year was 1962. It was the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. U.S. provocations included the failed Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba and the U.S. basing of nuclear missiles in Italy and Turkey. In response, the USSR sent nuclear missiles to Cuba and the U.S. countered with a naval blockade of Cuba. For the first time, the world's two nuclear powers could launch nuclear weapons directly at each other's territory. The world was dazed from a nuclear war, but how close we came was not fully appreciated for 50 years. Today, we know that one Soviet sub-commander, Vasily Arkhipov, 
saved the world from a nuclear war in 1962. The end almost began in the Caribbean Ocean. There, three Soviet subs with nuclear missiles were headed to Cuba. Unaware nukes were on board, the U.S. Navy dropped depth charges on two sides of a sub. The Russian in charge, an exhausted, nervous submarine commander, Valentine Savitsky, was cut off from communication with Moscow. Temperatures in the submarine were over 100 degrees. The air conditioning had broken down days ago, and the ship couldn't surface without being exposed. The captain felt doomed. Very loud American depth charges spooked him. He shouted, Maybe the war has already started up there. We're going to blast them now. We will die, but we will sink them all. We will not become the shame of the fleet. He ordered the nuclear-tipped missiles readied. His second-in-command approved the order. At that moment, Savitsky could have easily launched the torpedo. With the power of a Hiroshima bomb, it would have vaporized nearby U.S. ships, drawing almost certain nuclear response by the U.S. But it didn't happen because Vasily Alexandrovich Akropov, Savitsky's equal in rank, Arkhapov was a flotilla commander responsible for the three Soviet subs in the secret mission to Cuba, and he is maybe one of the quietest unsung heroes of modern times. Arkhapov simply talked Savitsky down. According to Thomas Planton, the former director of the non-governmental National Security Archive, this guy called Vasily Arkhapov saved the world. What saved humanity that day was the descent of Arkhapov because sub-commander Savitsky was required to get consent from all three senior officers on board. Savitsky ordered the nuclear attack and got one supporting vote, but Arkhapov balked. He wouldn't go along. The details are secret, but evidence suggests Arkhapov argued that the sub was now truly in danger, that noisy but off-target U.S. charges were a message that the U.S. wanted the sub to surface. Arkhapov said the charges could be interpreted as the U.S. saying, We know you're here. Identify yourselves. Come up and talk. We intend no harm. After the confrontation, Savitsky ordered the ship to rise where it was met by a U.S. destroyer. Calmer heads prevailed. The U.S. did not board the Soviet sub and allowed it to return to Russia. Even before this crisis, Arkhipov was a hero in a previous episode where a coolant system failed on his sub and the onboard nuclear reactor was in danger of a meltdown. Preventing this disaster, the captain ordered a temporary repair with materials at hand, but 22 crew members died of radiation sickness over the next two years, and Arkhipov and others were exposed to high levels of radiation. Arkhipov died in 1998 from kidney cancer, brought on, it's said, by his radiation exposure. Over the years, there have been a number of close calls between the U.S. and Russia. Worldwide, there are nearly 13,000 nuclear weapons in nine countries, multiplying the risk of a nuclear war by accident or intent. But there are actions we can take. Check DefuseNuclearWar.org and demand that our congressional delegation work to restore a series of treaties that Trump and other leaders have withdrawn from or allowed to lapse. Five years ago, Vasily Arkhapov was posthumously awarded the Future of Life Prize. Arkhapov's daughter, Elena Andriakova, said the family was grateful for the prize and its recognition of her father's actions. But the best way to honor Arkhapov would be to create a world safe from nuclear war. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson.
It's now 6.46 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier this month, Monica Kim, an associate professor of history at UW-Madison, was awarded the prestigious honor of a MacArthur Genius Grant. She received the honor for her work studying the identities of ordinary people who lived through the Korean War. Kim spoke with 8 o'clock Buzz host Andy Moore last Friday to talk about what she uncovered about those in POW camps during the Korean War. You warned me that reading your book is intense, and and you were right. And I may be out on a limb here that I'm about to saw off, but there's a word used in your book. The word is interiority. Explain that word, if you would please, and the bearing it has on what you uncover about the Korean War and the interrogation rooms. Yes, you just picked out the, the jugular, actually, Andy. So when often when we think about warfare, we think about battlefields, and certainly with something like a war like the Korean War, we always think about the 38th parallel, right? So about territory. But what came to light as I was doing my research for this book was there was actually such a focus on on people, on, on people's kind of um, how they were feeling, what their desires were, and obviously this comes out in the interrogation room. So I talk about how during the Korean War you can see this kind of shift from a focus on thinking about warfare on over territory to warfare over people's interiority. Um, and that that really comes through in this issue over POWs um, in the year 1952 of the war and all of these states all claiming that their interrogation room actually was the interrogation room where people, the POWs specifically, could actually express their true desires and will. Reading your book, it it becomes really clear um, with regards to interiority that the Korean War turned turned people inside out. You talked about sort of the objectives of that kind of research and focus, but what is gained by the historian? This is a two-part question. What is gained by the historian and then the learner by telling history through the experiences of everyday people rather than generals and presidents? So for me, by going by doing a kind of bottom-up history, one major, major assumption that's just exploded is this idea that war is a kind of bounded event, right? That there's kind of a clean point where you can say, oh, this is when the war started, and then a clean point when you can say that the war ended. By going to people on the ground, um, it just completely just upturns all of that. So, for example, with my research, i there was a point where I suddenly realized that the interrogator in U.S. military interrogation rooms were actually Japanese-American. I just kept on noticing these names, Sam Miyamoto, right, Jimmy Tanaka, George Yamamoto. And I suddenly kind of froze in front of all these interrogation reports because I've been so focused on the content. And then I realized that I wasn't sure what languages were being spoken. Hmm. And I wasn't even sure how many people were in 
the actual rooms. And and this is, you know, I'm I'm somebody who had been trained in Asian American history, Asian history and and US international history and I had no idea about these stories. Mm-hmm. And I did a bit more research over the next year. Um I did interviews with um, Japanese American former interrogators and what came to light was that the majority of over 4,000 Japanese Americans who had been primarily drafted by the US military during the Korean War had were actually about, about between 18 and 23 years of age. So if you think about that, Andy, that means that five years previous to the outbreak of the Korean War, which was in 1950, these young men had been adolescents behind barbed wire fence themselves hmm. in the Japanese-American internment camps of World War II, right? And um, so the United States, I mean, just to explain why they turned to the Japanese-American community for to be interrogators was that because of Asian Exclusion Acts in the late 1800s, you don't exactly have a very robust Korean-American community in the United States at that time. So the U.S. reasoned, well, Korea has been under Japanese colonial rule from the early 1900s until 1945 when they were liberated. Surely they would understand Japanese. So that's when the U.S. government and military then turned to its Japanese-American population. Dr. Kim, in the book, you take us inside the experiences. One group you described were American POWs under the influence of what was called, quote, Oriental, unquote, and you use that term in parentheses in the book, brainwashing, prisoners experience, and more to the point, what Americans thought those prisoners experienced, created quite a phenomenon uh, when they started returning home. Can you describe that? Yes. the One of the biggest ironies, I think, about the Korean War is that, well, Korean War veterans have dubbed the Korean War the Forgotten War. Right. So from but from this forgotten war, the one kind of cultural trope that is certainly its legacy is brainwashing. We all know what brainwashing is. Well, brainwashing became a kind of mainstream cultural trope because of the Korean War and specifically because of 21 POWs who actually decided to stay in China after the signing of the ceasefire in July 1953. And so there was this huge kind of outrage um, and kind of disbelief in the United States that um, American POWs would actually choose to go to China and the way the American public and also more specifically the U.S. military um, chose to kind of think about this or frame this was that these POWs must have been brainwashed. Now, when I went to the archives, it turns out that I learned um, that the U.S. military, um, especially the psychiatrists and intelligence service, came to the conclusion that the vast majority of U.S. POWs had been brainwashed. And I wanted to understand how they had come to that conclusion. And um, and what I ended up looking at was about over a thousand case files, actually, on U.S. POWs done by U.S. military intelligence services. Monica Kim, thank you for coming on the Friday 8 o'clock buzz and congratulations on the MacArthur Fellowship. Thank you so much, Andy. It's Monday, which means feature contributor Harry Richardson is back with two new movie reviews. First is Black Adam, a pretty good superhero movie starring Dwayne Johnson. Then Descendant, a great documentary about Africatown, an African-American community near Mobile, Alabama. The movie is about their proud history, 
and their current fight against environmental racism. My son sacrificed his life to save me. These powers are not a gift, but a curse. That was a clip from the trailer for Black Adam, a new DC superhero movie directed by Hame Kola Sara. This was a fun movie featuring Dwayne Johnson in the title role. It's been panned by the critics. It received 44% from them on Rotten Tomatoes, but a whopping 89% from the audience. Once again, I tend to agree with the audience. Our story begins in ancient made-up Kandak, whose symbology resembles Egypt. 5,000 years ago, an evil king enslaved his people and put them to work digging for a magical mineral. But a brave youth stood up for his people, is quickly caught, and about to be beheaded when he is magically transported to a circle of sorcerers who give him great powers. He can throw lightning bolts from his fingers. He has super strength, seems invulnerable, and can fly. It sounds a lot like Superman. He battles the evil king who built a magic mineral-based crown to call forth underworld powers. Adam defeats the king and is imprisoned for his troubles by the sorcerers. Fast forward 5,000 years and a group of would-be tomb raiders are searching for the ancient crown to keep it from falling into the wrong hands. They are led by Adriana Sarah Shahai who knows where to look for its secrets. When her group is threatened by a paramilitary gang that runs and exploits the country, she calls up the ancient hero from her people's legend. And he arises and kicks butt in pretty awesome fashion. Adam has his power by saying Shazam, but is nothing like that other humorous Shazam hero. All those explosions and killing of the bad guys comes to the attention of a special U.S. agency who calls the Justice Society of America to imprison a rogue super being. They are veteran heroes Hawkman, Aldous Hodge, and Dr. Fate, a fun role for Pierce Bronson, and two newbies, the super smart cyclone Quintessa Swindle and the size-changing Atom Smasher Noah Centenao. This brings us some cool action and fight scenes. There's also a pretty good villain who shows up late in the movie to take the crown's demon powers, Sabak Marwan Kensola. Stay a couple of minutes into the credits for a hint at the sequel. A fun film worth seeing on a big screen if you can do so safely. Now for a new documentary that deals seriously with the aftermath of enslavement. From birth, my daddy, he always wanted us to be able to talk to our people. Because you have this type of history, your ancestors are going to always talk to you. That was a clip from the trailer for Descendant, a new film by Mobile, Alabama native Margaret Brown. This is a moving documentary, one of the best I've seen this year. It's about the people of Africatown, a small African-American community three miles north of downtown Mobile, surrounded by polluting heavy industry. Brown interviews people about their heritage and about the current fight against the continuing cancer clusters and other health problems in their town. She highlights the story of Cujo Lewis, Olale Kozola, the town's last surviving founder, Kudjo, was also the last of the 110 enslaved people who in 1860 arrived on the Clotilda, which landed in Mobile. A local plantation owner, Timothy Mayer, made a bet he could bring enslaved people into the country after that act had been outlawed in 1808 and not get caught. Mayer hired William Foster as the ship's captain. Foster's crew went to West Africa, as explained in Cudjo's account, written up by Zora Neale Hurston in her book, Barracoon, The Story of the Last Cargo. We also saw some video shot by 
Hurston, fostered bought the enslaved people who had been kidnapped by people of the Dahomey Kingdom in modern-day Benin. The African's role was not mentioned in the dock. When he returned, the ship was burned and sunk to hide the evidence. After the enslaved people were forced to wait in swampland for over two weeks, they were divided among three plantations. Foster and Mare were brought up on federal charges, but got off. No manifest, no boat, no evidence. They didn't talk to the enslaved people. Then the Civil War started. In 1865, Cudjo and his people were freed. Cudjo went to Mare and demanded land for their unpaid labors, but was refused. Instead, Mare sold them some land, but kept title to a large surrounding area. This area was eventually zoned for heavy industry. United Paper and other large companies moved in, and Mare's family made millions and the rest is history. Kujo Lewis and his compatriots kept their story alive through oral traditions, but people were afraid to speak of it out in the open for fear of lynching. The injustice continues, as one reporter said. You can draw a straight line between 1860 and who suffers today. But the fight for environmental justice continues, and Kujo would be proud of his descendants, and that his story is finally told. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer tonight was Nate Carlin. Your reporter this evening was Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan, and to Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.